Good morning and welcome to our next message in our Ephesians series. This is the third week, um, week one. We looked at an overview of Ephesians and the, the culture, the context. We looked at the controversy about the author and the audience and that um, we learned that the Ephesians letter is actually um, a, a circular letter sent to the region of Asia Minor. But it was named after Ephesus potentially because that was the largest settlement in that region and Paul was writing to a Greek audience so that the content of the letters is specifically aimed at non-Jews and people without a Jewish background um, and that was one of the things that we we looked at and last week Andy spoke on um, being chosen predestined bar mitzvah and loved we learned that um, from Ephesians chapter 1 that the um, all people have been chosen by God in Christ but not necessarily everyone responds to that invitation we learn that everyone is a child of God. Whether they know him or not is obviously a secondary thing, but everyone is ultimately being created as a child of God. Um, we learn that salvation um, actually takes the form of an adoption, which is like a bar mitzvah. Um, so it's a, a recognition of, of our family standing, um, of our um, place in the family business, and that we are yeah, we're part of a family with a purpose. Um, salvation is also redemption, though, because a price was paid to set us free because we were slaves and we've now been liberated. But there was a price for our, for our liberation. Um, we've learned that part of our benefit of salvation is that God sealed us with Holy Spirit, um, which was like a down payment or deposit to guarantee to us the things that are ours, not just in this life, but also things that we've yet to experience and things in the life to come. So overall, we, we also saw that salvation isn't just an individual event. You know, we are saved, I am saved, you are saved, but um, it, it's not just individual, it's actually a cosmic event. It, salvation impacts the whole of the universe, the whole of the cosmos, because ultimately all things in heaven and in earth are going to be united in Christ. So what we see in Ephesians 1 is that um, it starts off with Paul listing the benefits of salvation, and then he shifts and he starts to pray for uh, the, the audience, for the readers, the hearers. Um, so what I want to look at is... What does he pray and why? So I'm going to be speaking from Ephesians 1 and verse 15 through to verse 23. So for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who, full, who fills all in all. So what I want to look at is um, what does Paul pray and why does he pray? And it's clear as we, as we kind of read that, we can see that he's praying that the spiritual blessings that he's taught the Ephesians actually change how they live. But why is that? And and we can have an idea because you know we obviously understand that we want, want to have truth that's not just in our head, but also changes and shapes our lives. But what's worth noting is that the audience of the Ephesian letters are primarily Greeks, and in that region of Asia Minor, which was 
pretty wealthy. Um, they're not only rich, um, they're not only diverse because Asia Minor is located, you know, centrally between Asia and Africa and Europe. So it's got lots of, you know, influences in, it, in their thinking, their beliefs. Um, but it's a thoroughly pagan audience. They um, they don't have an Old Testament kind of Jewish upbringing, as it were. They they aren't familiar with the stories of of the scriptures that they don't have an understanding of of Abraham and the promises to Abraham and David and the promises of David and the Moses and the law they don't have that foundation or that that bedrock so Paul's having to come at to them from a different angle he can't use the stories of scripture to illustrate and unpack truths um, so but what I want to propose to you that is that Paul is wanting to ground the gospel into their thinking but at the same time he also wants to address some unbiblical cultural strongholds that his audience have because they've grown up in uh, a Greek world. So that's what we'll look at first. My first point is that the Greek, we will look at the Greek views of heaven and earth and, and how that actually would be um, a factor that Paul has to consider as he's speaking and teaching and praying for the Ephesians. One of the things that we know about Asia Minor is that historically it was actually quite a centre of philosophy. Um, Greek culture was massively into philosophy as it was, but Asia Minor was a little bit of a hotbed. Um, historically, there's um, quite a lot of um, philosophical schools were um, on the coast or had been on the coast of um, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Um, and even Aristotle himself, one of the, the, the more famous philosophers, he was based in Ephesus for a number of years. And, and uh, you know, possibly because he understood that, that it was a city that had significant influence in that region. And so it seemed to be a good base for the spread of his ideas, which is interesting that the Apostle Paul also maybe has the same thinking when he bases himself at Ephesus. And I think it's it Acts where it says that, he's, that Asia opened up to him because he was based in Ephesus. So when we think of the Greek culture, what's worth understanding and thinking through is that um, they had what was called a dualistic worldview. Um, now, dualistic, it just means two, really. Dual is two. So dualism is a belief in dual worlds, uh, two worlds, um, a spiritual world and a physical world, the spirit realm and a physical realm. Um, and, and these two realms in, in Greek thinking were actually incredibly far apart they were um so distant from each other so uh, separated from each other um and not only were they separate and not really in contact or touching or influencing each other but they actually were in opposition that everything in the spirit world was the opposite or the anti to the physical material world um so in the greek thinking um and you know, their kind of logic and, and the way they saw things, that the spiritual, if it was the opposite of the physical, um, you can see where this has come from because um, when they looked at the physical world, it was temporal, meaning, you know, everything was affected by time. There was decay, there was rot, there was rust. Time um, impacts the physical world, you know, aging and, and um, you know, the, just the passing the impact of time, the seasons, you know, um, which meant that it was imperfect. Um, change things change would mean that they weren't considered to be perfect uh, and so actually change was bad because change meant that perfection um, wasn't an attribute that something had so the physical world was imperfect because it was continually changing therefore it was corrupt it was changeable it was flawed uh, and that was how they saw uh, the world they saw the physical world and in contrast when they thought of the spirit realm they they just thought the spirit realm must be the opposite of everything that the physical realm so so whereas the physical 
realm was subject to time, the spirit realm would be eternal. Um, it would be perfect because it's perfect, so it never changes. Everything that's in the spirit realm is just always is. It never changes. It's never subject to any kind of, uh, of death or, or transformation. So it's pure. It's pure, it's unchanging, and therefore it's truth. It's true. It's what things should be. Um, and that's how they, they viewed the world. Um, and, and when you think through that, practically, what does that mean, that worldview? Well, the Greeks were really obsessed with philosophy. It was, it was a huge thing for them. That's because ideas and truth and, and the, the quest for wisdom and truth was actually spiritual for them. Ideas were uh, a spiritual thing and part of the spirit realm. So that the pursuit and the, the giving of your life to uh, quest for, for, for truth was um, you know, powerful thing in their culture. So philosophers were, were revered, actually, if, if they had ideas that people considered to be weighty. Um, we, we, the thing with the Greeks was that they invented the Olympics, you know, Olympus, uh, Mount Olympus in, in Greece, um, where the Olympics were named from. And so athletics were a huge thing. Um, you know, they had Colosseums, which obviously the Romans adapted that idea. So the kind of, you know, racing and running and, and, and all those kind of those pursuits. Um, and what that's about is... It's actually about trying to bring perfection to the imperfect physical realm. It's through sport and through athleticism, trying to yeah bring mastery and dominion over the physical realm. Um, that was part, that was basically part of the athletics, and so you know athletes and um, you know the Olympics were, were huge in, in, in their culture. Um, another thing to think about is the art. Art actually often reveals values of a culture. Um, if you think about Greek statues and sculptures, have you noticed that they're always young? They're always naked and they're always beautiful, men and women. Why is that? And I, I think it's because what they're doing is they're trying to capture in stone permanently the the best perfect moment, as it were, as they can of youth and beauty. You know, because beauty beauty fades, beauty changes. You know, beauty for uh, in, in youth. You know, we don't always stay young. We get old and we become. You know, depending on how you see it, less beautiful, and so for the Greeks, they're, they're kind of seizing that moment, as it were, of of physical perfection, um, and so that's just some of the kind of outworkings of this dualistic worldview. Um, so you think spiritually, what could that look like as well? How how could this dualism, uh, yeah, show itself in in spiritual life and even in the lives of Christians or the church? Well, uh, one of my um, I want to propose to you that, that one outcome, it would be kind of an, an ascetic or, or legalistic kind of spirituality. Um, you know, we, they, that people would want to pursue the spirit and the spiritual realm so intensely that they actually master and dominate and crush, as it were, the physical um you know, imperfect, flawed world. You know, they so they 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 fast. They 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 choose celibacy. They they uh, shut themselves away and, and live in caves and, and eat rocks and all these kind of extreme things. You know, you hear stories of people standing on pillars for for years or not speaking and all these kind of things. And um and it's it's you know maybe it's a manifestation of of asceticism, of legalism, it's a dualism uh, kind of fruit, basically. Um, and that seems to be some of the stuff that was happening in Galatians, that, you know, Paul had said to the Galatians, you know, you've been bewitched by another gospel, and, and you know, there seems to be Jews amongst the Galatians church, uh, churches, and Galatia is the region um, basically east of Asia Minor, it's next door, so it's, it's very Greek as well. 
Um, it's um, like you know they're, they're you know the, the Jews are going to the Galatians and they're saying you need to get circumcised, you need to obey this law, you need to do this, you need to do that, and you know maybe it appeals to this kind of uh, it's compatible and appeals to this dualistic mentality of of you know we we minimise the physical to maximise the spiritual. Um, another possible outcome of, of dualism would be hedonism, um, that if the physical realm is uh, flawed and imperfect and, and of no value and the spiritual is of value, then maybe people can, you know, they would say they can do whatever they want because actually it doesn't really matter, you know, in the flesh you can live how you want, have sex how you want, you can eat and drink how you want, you can, all sorts of vices, because you know what, it's all about the spiritual. And that seems to maybe be what's been going on with Corinthians, um, and Corinth was in another city in Greece. So, um, you know, they, they, they're all excited because they've got the supernatural miracles and healings going on. Um, but also at the same time, Paul's saying, great, but what about all the sexual immorality amongst you? And, and what about all the factions amongst you, you know? You're, you're being fleshly. And uh, that seems to be um, the current Corinthian issue could be a, a fruit of dualism. Um, another outworking of dualism is this kind of thing of the, that the spiritual realm is so far apart and so detached and distant that you have to have secret knowledge and secret revelation to, to know it and have insight in it to therefore be spiritual. So you can ignore the physical, you've got to pursue this special secret knowledge. Um, it's Gnosticism and that seems to be what's going on in Colossae which is in Asia Minor, it's uh, you know a few days away from Ephesians uh, in terms of a walk. Um, so Colossians, Paul is writing to the Colossians to say no, actually, it's not about that. Uh, so what you can see is that when Paul's writing to these letters to these churches in Greek regions, um, he's contending against, I, I believe, some fruits of their dualistic worldview. Um, now, the other thing that's worth thinking about is that we come actually from a Greco-Roman kind of mindset and thinking and culture because the Romans were massively influenced by the Greeks. The Romans conquered Europe and brought in lots of their kind of laws and thinking and values, which, you know, over time have, have you know, been shaped by other things. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff which is, we can trace it back to, to Greek, Greco-Roman thinking. Um, and, and if we're not mindful, actually, we can have, without being aware of it, Greek dualism and infiltrating our thinking. And, and that will take the form of a sacred secular divide. Um, and that can look like some things that we would consider spiritual and holy and therefore better. Um, and the, the inference being that some things are unspiritual and unholy and therefore worse. And, and obviously we can have Bible verses attached to that. And the reality is in Scripture that some things are holy and some things are unholy. So I, I'm not questioning that. But some things actually get put into the buckets of holy and unholy. The, the Bible doesn't actually say holy or unholy. But we have, in, in kind of Greek thinking, potentially done that. We've made assumptions here. So, um, you know, you can see on the slides, uh, um, I've contrasted some, um, and these are just examples, it's not an exhaustive list, but uh, you know, we would have certain activities we consider spiritual and holy and therefore perfect and pure and, and truth, and so worship and prayer, you know, you spend your time worshiping, spend your time praying, spend your time reading your Bible, your spiritual disciplines, these are good things, and they are good things, they're good things, but an inference can be that other things that are not as valuable, like you know, just eating and drinking and sleeping and just normal life they're not as spiritual they're not as valuable to god because of it so you know don't waste your time doing those things you want to be in prayer in the bible um and actually if we're not careful we can take the good thing and, and do it from a wrong aspect because we're thinking dualistically we can have the same thing about holiness you know holy living is really important but actually what we can do is take some things that and say these are holy and therefore other things are unholy and so you 
sex is one of these things actually it because it's uh, a thing that is a physical thing actually for some some ways and historically the church has done this sex is considered bad and dirty and and, and, and ugly and a necessity just to kind of have children um, and actually that's not what the bible teaches about sex the bible teaches that sex is a beautiful thing made by god and god blesses it you read song of songs you read genesis god blesses sex it's his idea um and it's even a prophetic picture of the relationship between christ and the church uh, um, and yet it can be by some considered dirty or unholy um and it's interesting that actually the roman catholic church has their priests be celibate um is it because of a negative view of sex um, spiritual gifts is another one. We we kind of have this funny thing sometimes where certain spiritual gifts are considered to be spiritual, the capital S, and we value the healing and the supernatural miracles and the prophetic and things. But the, the natural spiritual gifts that are in scripture and, and in the same um, passages, uh, administration and hospitality and serving and giving and even things like leadership are, are not as valued because they're not as, uh, they don't seem as quote unquote spiritual. Um Basically, God really loves it if you prophesy, but God also really loves it if you're good with spreadsheets, if you're really good at, at making people feel welcome in, in your house. Um, God's really into it if you are great at helping people practically. It's God loves all of that, and he doesn't have a distinction. Um, the only distinction we see is, is when Paul says, I want everyone to prophesy, and that's only because he wants everyone to be able to encourage each other. So we've got to be careful here that we don't, in effect, idolize certain spiritual gifts over others um another thing you can get is is kind of the whole thing between ministry and and, and non-ministry jobs so um and I, i've seen this happen where um you know people feel called to serve god and that what that looks like for them is working full-time for a church and that's not a wrong thing but it might be for some people the only way they see that happening and they think i've got to be a preacher i've got to be a pastor or an evangelist and you know if i'm in ministry then that's it that's the ultimate this is a spiritual job and and actually all their other work and roles are there to kind of you know get them into that place as it were but actually um god doesn't do that there, there isn't a distinction between ministry jobs and non-ministry jobs actually it's all ministry it's all service it's all um showing christ to the world and whether you do that from a pulpit or from an office or even you know from the school gate or you know driving a taxi or, or working a factory or or whatever that might be actually work is work is a thing that god values not different types of work or roles or jobs um other, other things that people can sort of contrast without realizing it you know for religion everything is that christians are spiritual but non-christians are are not that earthly um you know you can follow that thinking and you get for the church is amazing and the world oh it's bad and and what can happen here because obviously there is this sense where as the church we are um we are called out, as it were. I mean, that's what Ecclesia, the word, means. We, we are uh, called out to God, but we're not meant to be withdrawn and distant and isolated. Um, we're actually meant to be very much in and shaping and and demonstrating the love and the passion and the power of, of God. Um, we're not meant to be isolated people. We're meant to be very much involved in, in issues of society and getting our hands stuck in. Um, but what can happen is you get this kind of strange isolationist mentality where you know people they meet in their churches they kind of huddle around and you know they're preaching judgment against the world and you know god's going to come back and he's going to rescue us in a rapture and then there's a tribulation and then jesus comes back and it's all going to burn and he's a god of love because he's going to take us out and it's actually dualism it's, it's a kind of we've got to hang on until jesus comes back 
Um, so just, you know, let's all bunker down and, 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 you know, let's just kind of make sure we're not corrupted by the filth of the world. Um, and uh, actually, it's not necessarily biblical of that. You know, it's, it's obviously important not to be in, influenced by the world's thinking, but that doesn't mean withdrawing from the world. So that's uh, something which can be actually dualistic thinking. Um, and just one more I want to bring attention to is, is sometimes this distinction that we as Christians make between the spirit and the soul and the body. Um, we talk about, oh, the spirit, you know, and, and you know, our spirit and the soul and the inner man. And that's obviously really important, having a healthy, you know, kind of uh, life of, of, of the of the inward, as it were. Um, but the body is not less than or diminished. The body is not, you know, uh, secondary or tertiary of it. Actually, God made our body. He blessed our body. He came in a body in the form of Christ. And so actually taking care of our body is important, uh, actually just as much as it is taking care of our spirit soul. And so, um, you know, it's really interesting to me that, you know, when you think about Elijah, after Elijah is doing his thing um, and, you know, Jezebel's like, I'm going to kill you, Elijah. I hate you. And he gets all depressed in a funk and he's like, God, take me away. I'm the only one left. And he has this kind of pity party. Um, and, you know, this, this angel appears to him and gives him incredibly profound advice he doesn't have a sozo with him or deliverance with him or inner healing or you know all this kind of stuff he just says eat and sleep eat and sleep uh, and i do sometimes think that some of our stuff that we struggle with just might be better sorted out if we actually slept more <laughs> slept better ate better ate less maybe <laughs> maybe did more exercise i was talking to myself here um and actually it would really help because you know, it's uh, it's important. We, we, we're made with a body. And so, you know, in God's eyes, our body is not flawed, dirty or corrupt. And I think we misunderstand what, what the flesh is. We, we see the flesh and think that means our physical being. And actually, that's not necessarily what Scripture means when it talks about the flesh. So, yeah, I want to just kind of propose that to you. This is what's going on with the Greeks. This is what's going on with their, their mentality. Um, the, the, the Hebrew, though, the biblical worldview is different to this. And what you can see, and you can see on my side, is that actually the spiritual and physical realms aren't distant, actually, but they actually overlap and influence each other. So that means, yes, the spirit realm spills over and influences the physical realm, but actually the physical realm can impact and influence the spiritual realm as well. Um, you know, that's why when we're tired or we're, we're, we're feeling down or whatever, actually it can impact and, and, and how we hear God or deal with God or, uh, you know, all those kind of stuff. Um, but what it also means is this, it means anything and everything can be sacred and, in quotation marks, spiritual. But it also means anything or everything, therefore, can be sinful and quote unquote unspiritual because it's not the location or the source, you know, whether it's a, what realm it comes from that actually determines that. It's actually our heart. And so, what I mean is this I mean that sex, for example, can be sinful or it can actually be an act of worship. It can be a sacred thing that honors and pleases God. It means that, you know, you can eat and drink to the glory of God, like Paul says in Corinthians, or you can not <laughs> and, be, and be gluttony. Um, it means that actually, you know, and this might be a funny one for some people, you can read scripture and you can have spiritual like fasting and even prayer. And they're wonderful things that are honouring and blessing God. Or you can be doing them from the wrong place, the wrong motive. And actually, they're um, not really about God. They're about trying to please God or win God's favour or make ourselves feel better. Um, and, you know, that's why I think, you know, James talks about faith that works is dead. That actually doing things with faith is whether it is one of the key determinants of whether something is kind of honouring God or not. Um, 
if we're doing stuff out of obligation or duty, you know, legalistically, then yeah, I don't know if that's something that in the same way um, is as honouring to God um, as someone who is thanking God for the beautiful beer that they've had, you know, genuinely. So yeah, I, I think the dualism thing is something we need to be mindful of. And I'm going to unpack that a little bit more, what that could look like for us as we go on. Um, but this is why the incarnation, you know, God coming to earth as a man, messed up Greek thinking. This is why Paul says to, um, in, in, in Corinthians, he says to them that the cross is an offence to the Greeks because for them, they don't get it. it it's, a, it's a paradigm exploder for them. You know, they've got God, the perfect God, stepping out of the perfect realm, spiritual realm, to the flawed, imperfect realm and taking on flesh, taking on flawed, changeable flesh, changing because he grows from a baby to a child, to a teenager, to a man, working as a carpenter, working with, in the physical, not as a philosopher, not as someone who deals with ideas like a politician, which the Greeks loved, but you know, physical manual labour, working as a carpenter, eating and drinking, needing sustenance as it were, um, all that really messes up their dualistic thinking. The incarnation is it's earth shattering for a, a Greek. And what Paul's starting off, and, and I, I want to kind of thread this in, is that he's saying that Christianity, Ephesians, Christianity is heaven coming to earth. It's not heaven versus earth. It's not God as distant, withdrawn, disinterested, holding off everybody on the earth as far away because they're corrupt. But actually, it's like God saying, no, I'm stepping into the world, even though the world's messed up, even though the world has got its sin and it's got its kind of mess and stuff. It's not actually fundamentally because it's a physical, spiritual, spiritual difference. It's because of the, the issues that I want to come in and actually deal with and address through the gospel. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the, the first point I want to understand is that the Greek view of heaven and earth was unbiblical. Paul's starting to correct that. We're going to look as we go through the rest of the prayer what he says and does to do that. So let's look at the scriptures, because I don't want to preach about dualism, I want to preach the scriptures, but we need to get that key to see what Paul is saying to them, and therefore what he could be saying to us. So my first point, heaven shaping earth is actually visible. Paul says in verse 15 and 16 that he's heard about the Ephesians' faith and their love being demonstrated. Their faith and their love is not some spiritual kind of thing that's floaty and like, oh yes, what faith and what love, and I float around on a cloud. No, no, I see your faith. I see your love. There's fruit, there's evidence, there's visibility. Why does he focus on faith and why does he focus on love? Here's my thought. Faith is trust in or obedience to God. Faith is spelt T-R-U-S-T. And Jesus said, if we love him, we'll do what he commanded, which is faith. So actually, actions of faith, of trust, actually demonstrate our love for God. And James said, faith without works is dead. Now, doing the right thing doesn't make it faith. That's legalism. But doing the right thing because you're trusting and believing God and obeying God is faith. And there's a distinction there. Because you can do two people doing the same thing and one is of faith and one is dead works. And God says, without faith it's impossible to please me. Because faith is about love and relationship and trust. So being a follower of Jesus should look like something. There is no such thing as a private Christianity. The Bible does not, that doesn't make sense to the Bible. 
It doesn't, it should look like something. It should be evident to people. Or it's evident to me when I'm alone in my bedroom. Well, that's not Christianity. That's just a kind of a secret spirituality, which is dualism. Paul also says, I see the love you have for all the saints. Now, Paul, the word here that Paul uses for love in the Greek is actually really important. And I think a lot of us know this, but it's worth saying. The Greeks had lots and lots of different concepts for love. Okay, lots of different words to describe different kind of types of love, if you like. In English, we don't have that. We just have the word love. And you have to have the context to understand what type of love. So if I say, I love my wife and I love chips, you hopefully realise I'm talking about two very different kinds of love. If you don't, that probably says what you think about me, which is worrying. But the Greeks, they had specific words to help people absolutely know for crystal clear what they're talking about. So they had words for a sex, sexual expression. They had words for love, which was for friendship, a family love, affection, infatuation and obsession, a mutually beneficial relationship like a business arrangement. They had a word for loving oneself. They had a word for showing kindness. And they had a word for unconditional love. Paul here is not saying to the Ephesians, I recognize your affection, for all the saints. He's not saying, I recognize your sexual expression for all the saints. I don't recognize, he's not saying, I recognize your infatuation with all the saints. He's saying, I recognize your unconditional giving and committed love for all the saints. They're showing visible fruits. They're showing love for God and love for other people. So if we have faith in God, it has to look like something. If we have love for other people, it has to look like something. It's practical. If our faith and our love don't look like anything in our daily lives, we've embraced Christian dualism. Heaven shaping earth is visible. In verse 17, we see that heaven shaping earth is actually relational. Paul prays, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Yeah, we love this word because it's got the revelation word. We're charismatic, so we love that word. Woo, 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 woo. We wish it could be in the Trinity, but it's not. Sorry. Revelation. Paul's prayer is Trinitarian. God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. It's wholly relational. Now, the other thing you'll notice in this verse, and we're looking at verse 17, is this title, Father of Glory. Everyone see that in your Bible? Father of glory. Why, why would write the Father of glory? It just seems a little bit of a funny kind of aside, if you like. Well, what I think Paul's saying here is this, that he's using the word Father in the sense of the cause, the author, or the originator of something, okay? And I think when he's talking about glory, he's talking about the, the kind of the manifestation of the unique qualities of godlikeness the the kind of the demonstration or the revelation of his nature so he is the cause or the originator of people understanding who he is and what he's like the father of glory he really wants the world to know who he is he really wants the world to know who he is and what he's really like and what this does actually this little phrase undermines one of the um, aspects of dualism, which is this, that God is distant, withdrawn, and disinterested. 
Because that is not the biblical God. Because he comes close, he's intimate, and he's very much interested. This undermines the, the belief that God is so holy, he's not, he can't actually have any interaction with us as people. That he is so offended by sin, he can't come close. It undermines all of that stuff, because that stuff's just a fruit of dualism. He's the father of glory. He wants us, me, you, to know what he's really like. And how does he do that? He sends the Spirit. He sends the Spirit. He himself comes to us and makes his home in us. Now, we saw in verse 13, and we talked about this last week, that actually they've already been sealed by the Spirit. So this isn't the first time. Paul's not praying this is the first time you'll meet the Holy Spirit. He's praying for subsequent encounters with the Holy Spirit. So we know we need multiple encounters with the Holy Spirit to learn what God is like. We shouldn't be satisfied with just one. But actually, it's that present, ongoing, continuous, fill me, Lord, fill me, Lord, fill me, Lord. I want to know, you tell me you're a God of love. How do I know that? Fill me with the spirit of love. I want to know that you're a God of peace. Fill me with the spirit of peace. I want to know that you're a good, kind God. Fill me with the, the spirit of goodness and kindness. Because if God is like something, that means the Holy Spirit who is God is like it as well. And his role is to live in us and actually show us what Jesus is like. The fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. If you want more of those things, Holy Spirit, come and fill me. He's already in you, so you're not asking fill me from the top, but fill me up from within because you've made your home in me. So it's a welling up, a welling up. And Paul here is saying that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now the Greeks hear that word wisdom and go, ooh, the philosophical ears are tickled. Oh yes, we want the wisdom. We want to know stuff. And the revelation is like, oh, the spiritual world touching us. Oh, that's a little bit of a new idea. Oh, But actually what Paul's saying is, this is not wisdom and revelation. This is not knowledge for knowledge's sake. This is not learning facts and numbers and Bible verses and doctrine and theology. This is learning him. This is the knowledge of him, not the knowledge about him. And the Greek word for knowledge here is not about an intellectual knowing, but it's about knowing through a sense of familiarity, through intimacy. You know because you know someone. Okay? If you've got kids here, and there's loads of kids running around, I just, I mean, let me just pick a hypothetical scenario that has never happened in my life. We're in a big church building, and there's millions of children running around, where it sounds like millions, and there's tears and screams and bangs and smashing and whatever, and all of a sudden you hear this ear-piercing, if you're a parent, you're tuned in to if that's your child or not, and if it's your child, if it's not your child, not my problem. If you see blood, obviously I'm a little bit more compassionate than that, but that's because you're familiar. I know what my kids sound like because I'm familiar with them. They cry a lot <laughs> all the time. No, they don't. I cry a lot. <laughs> That's very different. It's not a knowing about God, it's knowing God. 
Paul wants them to learn things that they don't know about God and understand what to do with that knowledge because it should make a difference. So if in our Bible study and our theology study and our book reading and our podcast listening and all our kind of understanding what Hebrew means and Greek means and all this kind of fancy stuff, if it doesn't actually make a difference to our friendship with God, it is Christian dualism. Good things, but what's the fruit? What's the fruit? Still with me? We see that heaven-shaping earth is holistic. So this is looking at verses 18 through to 21. Holistic meaning whole or complete. When God acts, it's holistic. Every area of our life is impacted. And Paul pulls out three things, okay? He pulls out the hope to which we're called, the riches of our inheritance, and the greatness of God's power. Paul specifically is saying to the Ephesians, I want you to know the hope to which you're called. I want you to know the riches of God's inheritance. And I want you to know the greatness of God's power. Why those three things? Well, we look at the hope to which we're called. We can read that and think, oh, that's about heaven. I'm, going to be, I'm called, the hope is heaven. But what that actually is, is dualism, sorry. Because what we're saying there is death is our saviour. I just got to hang on until I die or Jesus comes back and then I can have fun and life begins. This is actually really looking at our past. It's what we've been asked to do by God. And so I want to propose to you that actually the hope to which we're called is God's calling to us to be hope and bring hope to the world. It means that we live life, a new life, that is God-centred, which means hope-centred. God-filled, which means hope-filled. And God-leaking, which means hope-leaking, whether we're having a good day or a bad day. It means that we understand that we actually, by bringing hope, we actually are bringing heaven to shape earth. And what that does is undermines the dualistic view that God is withdrawn and disinterested and not bothered. We're not called to be disinterested and withdrawn. We're actually called to be stuck in, bringing hope. Paul talks about the Ephesians knowing the riches of God's inheritance. So for me, this talks about the future. This is about us being able to enjoy all that is available to us now as children of God. The blessings of not just the next life, but of this life. If you've got an inheritance, but you only get that inheritance when you die, it's not a very good inheritance. Let me say that again, because I don't think some of you got that. If you've got an inheritance, ooh, there's an inheritance of a million pounds coming my way excellent and there's a little caveat saying you know like sometimes it's like well when you turn 18 or when you turn 21 but you can only have it when you turn 350 years old you're never getting that money are you but actually that's what some of us think we can be thinking we get this inheritance in heaven but no that's not what it's about it's about this life as well that's why the holy spirit is a ceiling a down a down payment a deposit why would God give us a down payment? Basically, you're going to get 
everything else. Let me give you something of value to show I'm serious. And he himself moves into us. Why would he hold anything else back? Because he's given us the most valuable thing, which is him. So actually, it's not just about the next life, it's about this life. That is our glorious inheritance, which means that the inheritance we have is not just heavenly, but earthly as well. Do you see how that undermines the dualism thing again? We are actually people who are a bridge between heaven and earth. We've got a foot in both camps. We've got a hand in both camps. And we can pull resources from either to shape the other. That's what it is. That's what ministry is. You take the spiritual to shape the physical, and you let the physical be shaped by the spiritual. And it's natural. Paul then talks about knowing the greatness of God's power. And this is about our present. Because we need the power of God to bring hope to the world and the power of God to use the inheritance that he's given us well. Sometimes we need the power of God to discover the inheritance. What is it that God's got for us? What gifts? What opportunities? What ministries? What outlets? What outcomes? And we discover those things in a journey of intimacy and friendship with him. And we need the power of God to maximize them. And when you read this, what he, Paul uses, he puts, brings up the resurrection. He brings up the resurrection and the ascension, the enthronement of Christ, to, to demonstrate, look, this is what God's power looks like. Jesus rose from the dead. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is in us. That's in the Bible. I didn't just make that up. That's in the Bible. And he that is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Sometimes we don't live like that because we're thinking like dualistically. But actually, God's power says this. The resurrection says this. God has conquered death. And if he's conquered death, he's conquered your bank balance. He's conquered marital problems. He's conquered funny relationship stuff. He's conquered issues from the past. He's conquered hopelessness in the present. He's conquered fear over the future because he's conquered death. And he's ascended and enthroned and sat at the right hand of the Father, which means actually he sat down, so it's finished, it's done. If you've still got jobs to do, you don't sit down. Jesus is sat down. He is enthroned over all powers and principalities and rulers and dominions in heaven and in earth. This is what this passage is talking about. He's conquered evil. He's conquered opposition. He's conquered things. All things. He's sovereign. He's on the throne and he's sat down. Three of us are happy about that. God's power has conquered death and evil, which means whatever we are facing, he is in charge of. He is in charge of. And his power is available to us to navigate it. Which means his power is there to either change it or change us. Sometimes we pray, God, change this. God's like, but I want to change you first. It's the opposite of a disinterested God, a dualistic God. God's power is available to his children to bring hope and to be him on the earth. Which brings me to my, my last point, that heaven shaping earth is purposeful. We have to end with a so what. Because obviously I've said all this stuff, it's all nice, and some of you have gone yay, some of you are looking at me like, 
I want to punch you. That's fine. So what? What is this all about? Why pray? Why do you pray this? What's the so what? Heaven shaping earth through us has to be evident and visible. It has to be relationship-centered and not activity-centered. It's about a person, not about a doing. It's holistic. It should impact every single area of our life. But it's also purposeful. It's not actually for us to sit around and lie on the floor and have soaking sessions for 24 hours a day, 52 weeks a year. Yay, I'm a Christian. This is great. This is all I do. It's not actually just about that. Christ is raised and seated. He is head over all. He's the conqueror of death and evil. And we, as we can see in verses 22 and 23, are part of a people. We're part of God's people, and we've got a purpose. We've got a part to play. It's not just like joining the golf club and you never go. It's not like paying money to join the gym, and every month you see it coming out, but you go, well, I drove past the gym today, so I suppose that counts. It's not like that, being part of the church. It's not just about coming on Sunday morning and being able to give your kids away for an hour. What does it mean to be part of the church? It means that we are called to not be dualistic and withdraw from the world. Even if the world is evil and sinful and corrupt or whatever, that doesn't mean we go, oh, I'm too holy for this. We're not meant to isolate ourselves. We're not meant to wait for the rapture. We're meant to get stuck in. We're meant to get stuck in to society to community. We're meant to know who our neighbours are. We're meant to say hello to people that might not think the same things as we do. That's what we're called to do because firstly that's what the apostolic really is, transforming culture. But actually it's because we're his body. We're the body of Christ. Let's think through what that means. We carry him with us. Our hands are his hands. Our mouth is his mouth. Our feet is his feet. We're called to take God in us out to the places and the people that don't know him. Carrying righteousness, peace and joy. Because we carry hope. Because we have the riches of heaven available to us, not just for us, but for others to share. And we have access to his power. We're not meant to live dualistically. We're not meant to be Christians who all live on the same street and only ever talk to each other and homeschool our kids and our kids grow up till they're 50 having never spoken to anybody who doesn't believe the same thing. We're not meant to think that evangelists are the last person who spoke to a non-Christian because they went to the supermarket. Oh, you're an evangelist. You said hello to a checkout person. We're not meant to be like that. We're meant to be taking him out and showing the world what he's really like. But that means we need to know what he's really like and that's what's Paul praying. The wisdom and revelation that shows that God is not distant, disinterested, withdrawn, but actually he's close and he wants to be more close than we think. So this is really a total undermining and and dismantling of their dualistic worldview. And I know as I've been speaking, some of us maybe are thinking, yeah, maybe I've got some stuff as well. So what I want to do is invite us all to stand
I want to pray for all of us and then Mark's going to close the meeting. But I'm not going to ask for a public response because I think some things are just done between us and God. But I do want to pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to well up with every single one of us now. Which means that which means that God is going to start to talk to you about some things. And it might be right now. It might be as you're driving home. It might be as you're eating your roast dinner. It might be later on. It might be in the middle of the night. You wake up and you're like, oh, why am I awake? Because God's talking to you. Because he does that. He's annoying like that. It's quite funny. And until it's me, then it's not funny. So, Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We welcome you. Spirit of wisdom and revelation, would you fall... Would you well up? Would you come in all of us now and show us what you're really like? Show us what you're really like and what difference that should make to how we do life. Father, I pray if there's areas of dualism that have crept into our thinking, would you pinpoint them? Would you bring insight and understanding? And Father, I just pray, Lord, for a fresh um, encounter with your hope, your riches, and your power, Lord, and show us, show us strategically the who and the where that we are going to take you to and what that looks like. Even if that means saying hello to our neighbours, talking to someone in the office we don't usually do, saying hello to someone at the school gates, giving someone a phone call, whatever that might look like. Father, give us that next step so we can partner with you in your name Jesus amen